You know, if anyone uh, here has ever been to junior high school, and you know, it was a little while ago that they did away with junior high school, and I hate that, because saying to somebody, you're not an intermediate school anymore, doesn't sound quite as put downish as you're in junior high school still. And my wife says it to me all the time, just to let you know that I'm still in junior high school. But um, if you've ever been in junior high school, you've, you've probably heard this phrase. And that ought to scare you. <laughs> no, it's not bad. It's, it's, who died and made you king? Okay? Who died and made you king? What can I say? With that phrase came the rejection of authority as though anyone in junior high school had any authority to begin with, including the teachers and the principal, okay? Robin taught school, so he probably agrees with me. But it's a total rejection of authority. Nobody, nobody really enjoys authority over them, right? Erin tells a story of when she was young, one of her friends, and this is during the Vietnam War, his mother asked him to take out the garbage. And he said, nobody's going to order me around. I'm joining the army. Which, um, I think that was the origin of the phrase, unclear on the concept. But, uh, yeah, that'll show her. (laughs) Uh, Today, in our leisurely stroll through Acts, Stephen, in his defense before the Sanhedrin, visits Israel's treatment of Moses because Stephen's defense is basically all about showing that Israel has rejected everybody who's ever been placed in authority over Israel. And that includes and starting with God himself. Last week we looked into the rejection of Joseph and uh, by extension of Jacob and Abraham. We saw last week that Joseph was a type of Christ. Well, this week we're talking about Moses. And Moses is not just a type of Christ, Christ but the type of Christ. Uh, in my ongoing quest to show you uh, all how human nature has not changed in the last 4,000 years and actually uh, hasn't changed probably since the garden, the first thing a representative of the Hebrew nation says to Moses when he comes to them is basically who died and made you king. Now, Uh, That's my own translation. What the uh, uh, English Standard Version says is, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Okay, let's step back again. And he's talking to the second most powerful man in Egypt. Who made you a king and a a ruler and a judge over us? There's a really witty inviting response to this challenge but as Moses points out himself in to God in Exodus 440 uh, he says oh my lord I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant 
but I am slow of speech and of tongue because otherwise he could have pointed out a number of people have made him a ruler and judge over them. So to our text for today, and it's once again a long passage. I'm just breaking this up into either three or four messages. As I pointed out, uh, Christopher Sheffield up in the Rocky Mount Church preached this all the last time I heard it in one fell swoop. Just all of it at once. He didn't know how to break it up. So, or he didn't want to break it up. So, Acts seven seventeen through 29. But, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And remember that God had made a promise to Abraham that his offspring would inherit the land. And this, and, but before then they would serve in Egypt before he brought them out. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose in Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And we'll stop there. As we saw last week, God promised the land of Canaan, not to Abraham, but to his descendants, with the added knowledge that they would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And I see that it's more like 440, but it's not, it's not Stephen being wrong in scripture. It's a speech. We have that a little bit later here also. Because actually these points are technical. You read these commentaries and people are saying, well, you know, that wasn't true. Well, it was a speech. You know, it, it's recording faithfully a speech. So, when a speech is being recorded faithfully, we will give that slack. Uh, verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. They were pretty successful in Egypt. They ate well. They were there for 400 years. Jacob, 12 sons, and their families turned into a nation of millions. Stephen continues this narrative 
his narrative in verse 18. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now, in 400 years, I think we can expect uh, that there were, had been at least 20 pharaohs since they arrived in the land. If we give it a 20-year reign, some of them reigned longer, some of them reigned less. But in 400 years, I think that he hadn't been remembered in a long time, uh, Joseph. Verse 19 says, He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. Now, like I say, the wonderful thing about Bible Hub is, I don't think shrewdly is a good word there, okay? And if you look at the other translations, some of them say Pharaoh exploited them. Okay, that's a good one. Dealt treacherously with them. I like dealt treacherously a lot. Was deceptive. Crafty. By way of proving this, it says that Pharaoh forced the Hebrews to expose their infants. And we've covered this before. Exposing isn't something gentle. Exposing is infanticide. It's where you take your child... And you throw them on a, well, in Rome, it was throw them on a dung heap. In, in Egypt, I don't know what they did. They were supposed to be drowned in the Nile. No matter how the death comes to the children, though, and we've looked at this before, God hates the death of the innocent, and he especially hates the sacrifice of children, no matter how it comes. And uh, this is not a pro-life sermon, but if we are accused of being anti-abortion, there's a good reason for it. Because God is against the sacrifice of children. Verse 20 says, At this time, Moses was born and was beautiful in God's sight. Uh, Now, we have a really good idea exactly what... We're really lucky in this. We know exactly what Moses looks like because Cecil B. DeMille uh, made a movie and Moses looks just exactly like Charlton Heston. Am I correct? When you think of Moses, do you not see Charlton Heston? I do. But that's not what Stephen means by Moses was beautiful here because God does not look on the outer man. He looks at The inner man. Moses was beautiful to God for what he looked like on the inside and for what he felt towards God and how he obeyed, how he obeyed God's direction. Says he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Now, this was also against Pharaoh's orders. You might think a three month old is pretty helpless. I think a three-month-old is pretty helpless. But compared to a newborn, they're pretty stout. They've eaten. They've gotten some strength. So keeping him in the house for three months gives Moses a little bit of of an advantage. It might buy him a few days of life. So against Pharaoh's orders, uh, Moses' family did not immediately expose Moses to the elements. Besides this all, Moses' mother had a plan, verse 21, and when he was exposed, 
Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Now this does not tell, in fact, in this description of Stephen's, he does not give us much detail. Exodus does give the detail that um, Moses was not just thrown into the Nile, but instead his mother carefully constructed a, a basket of bulrushes and covered them in pitch. And someone said this was oil, but it'd probably be tree pitch, which is also waterproof. Then she placed Moses in it and floated it on the reeds close to shore. So he wasn't just thrown in, he wasn't just pushed out. It was, And beyond that, and I tried to find this out, Moses' sister was commissioned by his mother to watch over and see what happened. And I do not know that this was Miriam. It does not say, I'd be inter- interesting only to me, I guess, but Moses' sister watched over from a distance to see what would happen, and not by an accident of God, as God has no accidents, and nor was it an accident of his mother, is my best estimation, I assume she knew where the royal household bathed. But Moses was found by a daughter of Pharaoh and adopted and raised as her son. We do not convincingly know the name of the princess who saved Moses, but in case you care, I did not look up. Artabanus, a Hellenistic Jewish historian, is quoted by Eusebius. So now we're... we're Two lines down, the uh, this is we've got a game of telephone going on here. But Artabanus is quoted by Eusebius as saying her name was Maris, uh, which is a name that is similar to in history to the daughter of Ramses II, and Ramses is mentioned in in Exodus at this time. We don't know, but in verse twenty-two, Stephen says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, I have talked to you that I go to many sources when I do this, and I go back to secular history, or I'll go back to uh, religious historians, and though it's not scripture, it fills in deeds, uh, it fills in details, because Stephen did not get what he just said out of scripture. Okay, when he says that um, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds, sorry, that's not not in Exodus. Stephen here goes beyond what Scripture says in Exodus. Indeed, Exodus says nothing at all about Moses' upbringing. Nothing about his schooling, nothing about any mighty deeds. So, So is Stephen wrong? There's a question for you. F.F. F. Bruce uh, gives this footnote in his commentary on Acts. That he was mighty in his words may seem to conflict with his disclaimer of eloquence in Exodus 4.10. But the reference could be to his writings. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment. The statement that he was mighty in action is illustrated by the legend preserved by Josephus in Antiquities 2.10 of his leading an Egyptian campaign against the Ethiopians. So, we don't have any of that in Scripture. However, 
led a campaign against the Ethiopians. He had a Cushite wife who was very black. We covered that earlier when, uh, uh, when Miriam was struck with le- leprosy and what that might have all been about. So perhaps this is secular history. Perhaps it's true. We do not really know. F.F. Hey, F. Bruce goes on and brings up more Hellenistic Jewish history. Artabanus once again and Eupolimus, uh, which are both quoted again by Eusebius. And remember Eusebius was 200s or so Christian historian who strove to get things right. That doesn't mean that the history is correct, but he strove to get things right and people did know things. Anyway, Artabanus, and this is a quote, Artabanus says that the Egyptians owed all their civilization to Moses. He identifies him with the Musaeus of the Greeks and with the Egyptian Hermes. An earlier Hellenistic Jew, Apollemus, another of a work on, uh, author of a work on the kings in Judea, and quoted by Eusebius, describes Moses as the inventor of alphabetic writing. A suggestion repeated in our day by Sir Charles Marston in The Bible Comes Alive. According to Philo, now Philo was a Jewish historian, philosopher of Jesus' time. 50 B.C., uh, 30 A.D. roughly. And um, Philo says that Moses was proficient in arithmetic, geometry, poetry, music, philosophy, astrology, and all the branches of learning. Josephus describes him as unique in wisdom, stature, and beauty. And F.F. Bruce says, after all this, Stephen's language comes to us almost as an understatement. And once again, I say this is not scripture. Um, It is not written in stone. That was a little Moses reference here. Excuse me. Verse 23 says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Moses lived to be 120 years old. Uh, And it's convenient for us that his life breaks down neatly into three 40-year periods. Birth to 40, he was among the Egyptians. Royalty. From 40 to 80, he was living in the land of Midian after fleeing from killing the Egyptian. And the last 40 years was leading the Israelites in the wilderness towards the promised land. So in his second, just at the beginning of his second 40 years here, he decided to visit his ancestral race, Verse 24 says, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now Moses had been raised knowing that he was a Hebrew. Remember his mother was brought in as the wet nurse at the beginning when uh, the uh, daughter of Pharaoh found Moses in the basket. His mother was brought in to nurse him. We do not know because we don't know how long his mother was there, but Moses did know that he was of the Hebrew race. 
And knowing that the Hebrews were under the thumb of Egyptian slave drivers, he was moved by their suffering and and seeing a Hebrew being beaten, Moses stepped in, struck down the Egyptian, and he killed him. Verse 25 says, he, was, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now this is editorializing by Stephen, who in this defense is pointing out, of course, as I said earlier, that the Hebrews rejected Everybody God sent to save them. And here's the first time for Moses. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Stephen says the Hebrews simply did not understand the salvation God was offering them through his prophets. Doubtless Stephen would have invoked the ultimate salvation belief in Jesus and what that offered, would they only open their eyes and understand? He was just one more prophet. Well, he wasn't just one more prophet, but he was one more prophet that the Israels rejected. And this is ultimately what Stephen is on trial for, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 26 says, And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Now, Moses wished to not just be the salvation of Israel, but to be a peacemaker as well. Uh, He wanted to see, to reconcile Jew to Jew. He appeals to them that they are brothers. And verse 27 says, But the man who was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who died and made you king? So Moses, whose only wish was for peace between his countrymen, is accused by a bully of bullying. The point of this story is that people of bad behavior wish to continue their bad behavior, uh, which if you think about it is the story of the Israelites or writ large of the human race from even before the fall. You can't tell me what to do. The bully then confronts Moses in verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Well, now that you mention it, well, the, in American politics, They say it's not the crime, but the cover-up that brings you down. Moses finds out here that it's actually both the crime and the cover-up, which he thought he had cleverly concealed. It turned out that the murder was common knowledge and undoubtedly soon to be known to the highest Egyptian authorities. A subplot to this um, intrigue, is found not in scripture again, but in the history of Josephus, that the current pharaoh of Egypt was already jealous of Moses and was looking for a way to get rid of him. He did not like the influence Moses had over the country. So, Which which brings up, when, when Moses disappears for 40 years and comes back, he did not get a great reception 
you know, as we know from the story. Well, he wasn't a long-lost son coming back. He was a rival and a hated rival coming back. Verse 29 concludes, um, At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And here begins the second 40-year chapter in the life of Moses, which Steve will get into a little bit, but Moses may have been surprised at his rejection by the people he sought to save, but, but we shouldn't be. The Jews pride themselves on being God's chosen people, right? Even in Jesus' day, they're talking about being God's chosen people. In The Princess Bride, which is full of many wonderful quotes, probably the best quote in there is, I do not believe those words mean what you think they mean. God's chosen people. God didn't choose them because they were better than everyone else. This is not the point of God's chosen people. Uh, Solomon, of all people, after building the temple to God and being allowed to do that, rebuilt, as we saw, the pagan high places where child sacrifice was performed, that God sent them into the Canaan specifically to destroy. Solomon rebuilt the high places. His son and grandson sacrificed their sons in the temple. Okay? This is not the act of the best people in the world. This is the act of the worst people in the world that God said to utterly destroy. And the reason that God said to utterly destroy them is that they wouldn't fall into this practice of the land. God called them, the Israelites, an obstinate, stiff-necked people. The story of the Israelites is one of rejecting God first and killing God's prophets, as Stephen is pointing out in this passage, as opposed to choosing the best race of people in the world to be his very own chosen people. I won't say that he chose the worst people, the worst race of people in the world, but I think that he probably chose the average people in the world. It's as though God is saying to the rest of the people in the world, look what I can do. Look what I did with this rabble. He says, I blessed the world through them, even though they've opposed me at every turn. The blessing is going to come to the world through these people, but they think It's because they're such good people and God's chosen people. You look through the genealogy of Jesus and what do you find? Criminals of every sort. David's the best of them. And he's called a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. We have a genealogy of Murderers, prostitutes, liars, and betrayers. And that's what Jesus, that's what God 
puts down about Jesus' own lineage. God is telling the world, this is what I've done with the worst of you. Calling them my own, bringing them to worship me, to be my possession. You know, there used to be bumper stickers. I don't even know if they're bumper stickers. I guess they're bumper stickers. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Okay, really tried. I really always hated that one. And yet, and yet, it's the same thing with the Jews. The Jews aren't perfect, but they're God's chosen people. Well, Christians aren't perfect. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're just exactly like, well, I'd like to say I'm exactly like David, you know, but I'm not. I'm worse. I'm worse than Solomon. I'm sure of that. If all of us look at our lives, we realize that we are here in church worshiping God, not because of us, but only because of what God is doing through us. The works that God is working in our hearts and in our actions are the only reason we're sitting here. Otherwise, left to our own devices, we would be like we would be like people worshiping the sun and the moon. We would be like the people sacrificing their children in the high places. It is only by God's grace and His calling that we can sit here today and worship Him. And Christians really are God's chosen people. So when I say that, I say it with the same, I say it with the same humility that the Jews should have had back in the day. We're God's chosen people, and that really is only to show the world that God can use anybody to further his kingdom. Let's close in prayer.